Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is amazing in the housing economy to think of the housing dynamics and the prediction that the moonshot in housing will end. That was where I first met Jan Hatzi, is now chief economist at Goldman Sachs. He owned the high ground on the last housing boom. Events are so important. We're not going to talk about that on this Friday morning. With Jan Hatzius, we're going to talk about the Goldman Sachs call, the gloom of recession, and the global and American labor economy. Dr. Hatzius, thank you so much for joining us again. I've got to go to labor. I want to go Dudley McKelvey from years ago when you were a young upstart at Goldman Sachs and go back further. Your analysis on where we are now with this strange labor economy goes back to the late 40s in the early 50s. That's right. So if you look at the gap between the total number of jobs and the total number of workers were We've got the most overheated labor market going back all the way to the early 1950s. Best way to see it, 11 million open positions, 6 million unemployed workers. That 5 million gap is a record, both in absolute terms and relative to the size of the economy. So I think that's really what the the Fed's going to be focused on. Politicians want an employed America. If I'm elected free beer, if I'm elected a job for all. What's wrong with an overheated labor economy? Well, if it generates wage growth that's more than what you can sustain with maybe 1.5% to 2% productivity growth and a 2% inflation target, then ultimately you get higher inflation that erodes the, the real wage of, of workers. So that's ultimately not really in anybody's interest. And right now, you know, wages are growing in the 5 to 6% range, and that is too fast. Jan, you're not a recessionista. You say we think a recession is far from inevitable, but you are looking for some severe deceleration in this economy. Just lay out the forecast for us, GDP at year-end, where you think we're going to land and why you think the Fed will still be pushing on, even with those numbers. We're expecting a slowdown from 5.5% growth last year to just under 2% this year, if we look at it on a fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis. So basically from very far above trend, very strong V-shaped recovery to something around the economy's trend pace. And the Fed will be pushing on because the labor market is overheated and inflation is too high. So I would say that the reason, one very important part of the reason why growth is going to be slower is that the Fed is trying to slow things down. So, Jan, you'll have GDP with a one-handle by year-end. Where's CPI at that point? I just want to understand the mix, inflation to growth. I think uh, CPI around 5% uh, for, you know, core PCE, we have a little over 4, 4 4.25%. So, you know, still well above the 2% target, though lower than now, because I do think that some of the inflation is going to come off in the in the goods sector as we go forward. Well, that's just mechanically. We should see a mechanical peak later this year, Jan. I think most people are looking for that. I'm trying to work out next year, just in terms of where this Fed funds would peak, what would influence that call for you? What would you be looking for through the next six to nine months? Well, I think if the economy does not slow and if we 
in, in particular don't get a, a pretty substantial slowdown in employment growth, then you'd be looking at something you know that could go uh, significantly higher to the 4% plus range. Our baseline is pretty close to market pricing, a little over 3%, but it could be significantly higher than that if we see continued increases in this overheating. Hold on a second. Jan, I want to sit on that for a second. A 4% terminal Fed funds rate, when do you see that being a possibility if we continue to see strength in the labor market? I think in 2023, it's a possibility. Uh, you know, our, Again, our baseline is that by the middle of 2023, we'll be at a little over 3%, but you know, there are obviously risks around that. On the downside, if we get a you know much sharper tightening in financial conditions than they want, on the upside, if the economy stays stronger or you fail to get additional tightening in financial conditions. I mean, the goal for the Fed is to bring about a gradual tightening in financial conditions. Otherwise, they're not going to achieve the goals that they have, which is to stabilize the economy near full employment, but not in an overheated state. So do you agree with Bill Dudley that the Fed has to essentially cause stock prices to decline? It doesn't have to be declining stock prices, but it has to be some combination of weaker stock prices, higher interest rates, a stronger currency, and wider credit spreads. And these things you know, can be substitutable for one another. We look at our Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, and those are the different components in there. I was looking at the rates call over at Goldman, just in terms of where treasuries will be. Inversion, year-end, inversion, year-end next year, and again, the year after that. Jan, what would that mean from an economics perspective, just your relationship with the rates team and their call year-end this year, the year after, the year after? What does that mean? Well, they build in the, econ- the, the call from the economics team on the real economy and on monetary policy. And we have the funds rate a little over 3% and 10-year yields a little under 3%. So yes, mild inversion. I would also say that if you look at market pricing for the federal funds rate, of course, that's already that already shows an inversion. Market pricing goes up to a little over 3 and then it comes down to about 2 in sort of starting in late 2023. So the market is saying there's a meaningful risk of renewed rate cuts because the market sees a meaningful risk of a recession. There's a missing ingredient in this conversation and it's the labor market. It's where you started with Tom. 3.5% is where the Fed is at year end. Again year end 2023. Given what you expect, the kind of deceleration you're looking for in the economy, the persistence of inflation as well, the work the Fed needs to do, what do you see happening and how out of sync with that G- is that unemployment target with what you're looking for? Well, we actually have the unemployment rate fall a little bit further to a three and a quarter percent despite the, the weaker growth forecast. I mean, I think the 3.5 percent forecast from the Fed is already a little bit stale probably uh, just given that we're already down to 3.6% since the, the, the summary of economic projections was published. Yeah, and this is really important, though. Everything you're expecting and you still expect unemployment to keep falling, doesn't that just tell you that actually they've got to go higher with interest rates? Well, they, I think they do have to go higher with interest rates, But yes. higher than you're anticipating. But possibly, possibly, although it's not just about the unemployment rate. I mean, this overheating in the labor market is, you know, on the demand side, it's unemployment, uh, but it's also it's also open positions or jobs, but also open positions. We do expect that open positions 
probably will come down somewhat. So in an ideal world, what the Fed would do is slow the economy to a degree that leads companies to, you know, delay or, or, or shelve some of their expan expansion plans, thereby bring down these extremely high open positions without slowing it so much that you get substantial layoffs. Yeah, so that's what, the, that's what you're shooting for. Is that going to be, you know, available? Is that, is that what actually happens? We're going to have to see. It's going to, I think, require some fancy footwork from the Fed. Yeah, I see why it's a narrow path to the soft landing. How high do rates go before there is a recession? Can we handle a 4% Fed funds rate without a recession uh, occurring in the United States? Well, I think the higher rates have to go, and especially if rates have to go significantly higher because you see <clears throat> even clearer signs of overheating, the higher the recession risk goes. So, you know, if you go if you go up to yeah. four, the risk is higher than if you're if yeah. you're in the sort of uh, low to mid threes. Jan, the, the Twitter's lighting up here. The emails are coming in. The pandemic's over. One of the glimmers of joy within the pandemic was you and Pharaoh and me going back and forth with no tie on. You're coming in today, tie. We need to know: Does Solomon force you to wear a tie today? Is this the new Solomon regime? I just wanted to celebrate that I'm coming back into this office. That's I think that okay. was just for us. We wanted to know. David had nothing to do with this, right? <laughs> he did not have anything to do okay, with this. Okay, there's your this there's is your a personal break, celebration. There's your break exclusive today with Jan. Hey, Jan, that was a clinic. Just fantastic yeah. to get your thoughts and the whole of the team over at Goldman, Tom, and what they're looking at at the moment. Christina Kavine, who is what America is about when you come out of school and you join this strange thing called the Foreign Service. Her first tour of duty was in Paris, France, which was heavy lifting. But for that, she has spanned the world for the United States of America being a diplomat. She's U.S. charged affairs to Ukraine right now. Christina, what are the ramifications to all of this? If Russia not so much takes eastern Ukraine, but takes the shores of the Black Sea, what will be our diplomatic response to something as shocking as their taking of Odessa? Well, first of all, I would say, um, obviously, you, uh, Russia's attack uh, in the south of Ukraine and also their blockage of the Black Sea is a significant barrier to trade, not just with Ukraine, but with other countries that uh, are literal states of the Black Sea. So the economic costs are significant. <clears throat> right now, the Russians uh, have not, their, their invasion of Ukraine has not gone according to plan. I think they thought that they might be able to take Odessa easily within a matter of weeks, and clearly that hasn't happened. In fact, Russia has had to pull back from uh, its central position and its approach on Kyiv. And so far, they have not been able to get, uh, right. they have not been able to take Mikolaev, which is uh, to the east of Odessa and would have to be taken before they could take Odessa. So I would say uh, that it's a little early to right. suggest that Russia would be able to take Odessa, given the fact that they have not succeeded so far in, in, in most of their plans. I agree. That's a, that's a fair statement. Uh, and I'm going to call you Ambassador because of your years of public service to the country. Ambassador, my colleague Jonathan Farrow asks of Turkey, the Black Sea, the Bosphorus Straits as well. What is the present relationship of Mr. Biden and Mr. Erdogan? 
Mr. Biden, uh, President Biden and President Erdogan uh, have a good relationship. Uh, they talk frequently and they talk about the many uh, important issues that Turkey is a part of. I would say, too, that Turkey has been uh, quite supportive of Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky also has a good relationship with President Erdogan, and Turkey has actually been hosting some of the negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. So I think Turkey has been playing a positive role in this. And finally, as a NATO ally, of course, and part of a unified NATO that stands against Russian aggression, um, Turkey has been supportive. Christina, there's been a, an ongoing conversation about the potential for a no-fly zone or more aggressive offensive weapons given to Ukraine. There has been a shift in the type of military uh, weapons that are being given to Ukraine. How much do you consider this an escalation or do you think that the line that determines escalation has shifted with what we saw out of Bucha? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, it's Russia that's causing the escalation. So what we're trying to do is help Ukraine defend itself. Uh, and honestly, the Ukrainian foreign minister has uh, said to me uh, more than once that any weapon that's used in Ukraine to defend U Ukrainian territory is by uh, its nature a defensive weapon. So what we're doing now is uh, taking all of Ukraine's requests for various weapon systems and uh, seeing how we can match them with what we have in stock and what we think Ukraine could best use right now if we give it to them immediately. And uh, we've already given them a very large uh, supply of both anti-air, anti-tank, uh, ammunition, uh, defensive things like body armor and other uh, material. Mm. But we are looking at, at further systems that they will be able to use to help uh, not just defend against Russia, but repel them from the areas of Ukraine that they still continue to occupy. Christina, you talked about trying to do it quickly, immediately, and uh, certainly Foreign Minister Kuleba of Ukraine has been emphasizing the need for speed as Russia regroups. How big is this window of time? Well, uh, we are concerned, as the Ukrainians have said, that President Putin is uh, not withdrawing, but regrouping. And when he regroups, uh, it is believed that he may be uh, making an offensive, a heavy offensive in the east, perhaps in the Donbass. So it is a relatively short period of time that Ukraine has to make sure that they're ready for that. But we, since, since before the war, actually, we have been flowing weapons into Ukraine. In fact, several months before the war started, we had seen what Russia was starting to uh, do. And we started to flow weapons in before the war started. And then after the war started, of course, we, flow, uh, we have flowed in even more. So we're getting weapons to Ukraine every single day. However, of course, Ukraine needs as many as they can possibly get, and we're doing our utmost to try to get them as much as we can as soon as we can. Christina, just briefly, what is the difference between defensive and offensive weaponry? What is the difference? Well, again, uh, I, I, I would go back to uh, uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba's uh, view that any weapon that is in Ukrainian territory defending against attacks against Ukraine is by nature a defensive weapon. Seems to be some disagreement that on that on the international stage, though. Christina, thank you for your hard work throughout all of this. Christina Kavine there. Anastasia Amorosa joins us, Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital. Anastasia, I want to talk to you about international relations. We'll save that for later in the conversation. How has your outlook changed as we begin the second quarter? 
Well, Tom, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, but one thing that actually hasn't changed is the view that I've had on cyclicals for a while. And it was not the time to chase performance on cyclicals or performance on value. So we've actually been talking to investors about rotating out of those cyclical spots. And for reason exactly what John just talked about, which is this is not a set of bullish rate hikes. This is not a set of uh, uh, bullish developments that the Fed is pulling back on liquidity. So I think there's a real concern right now about a slowdown that is consumer-led because things are getting too expensive and consumers may potentially be in a double whammy situation where prices are high and the Fed is hiking rates, which is making all the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy really prohibitive as well. So right. I think that's a big part of that's been a big part of the outlook. And now the, the other thing, Tom, that I would say, we have a little bit of breathing room near term, I think, given how much valuation reset that we've had in Q1 and given how much positioning reset lower that we've had in Q1. And I think we're now in the stalemate situation, whether it's inflation, whether it's Ukraine. So barring adverse developments, I think we have a little bit of breathing room for the equity markets. But having said that, we can't ignore the longer term risks of this consumer led recession or slowdown, whatever it may be, that are building. So now I think is the time to right size the risk in the portfolios. And so when we have those rallies, when we have the reset lower in volatility, I would be using that to actually de-risk parts of the portfolio. Anastasia, what do you expect to start seeing a consumer led recession or signs of it if that really does come to pass? Well, I think we're going to see in the coming quarters, probably this quarter and next, at least a slowdown. I, I mean, if you look at consumer confidence, for example, it is already at a 10-year low. And a one-year recession probability from this point of consumer confidence is about 65%. So I think we have some of the indications there. We also have expectations for consumers for their own personal finances that have fallen sharply. The buying conditions for durable goods have slumped, I, I want to say, to the lowest level on record. So again, I'm not surprised to see that the transportation sector is starting to feel that. So I really think we're going to start to see a slowdown in the next uh, quarter or two. But to have this really be a recession, I do think that the Fed has to commit a policy error and has to over tighten too much into a slowing economy. It's not the base case at the moment, but I think that's definitely a risk worth watching and a risk worth hedging. Right now, what's the ballast of the portfolio? Is it uh, the commodity sector? Is it long bonds after they've risen, uh, the yields have risen so high uh, price down? Well, first, we should talk about the core of the portfolio, which for most people is some sort of S&P exposure or the NASDAQ exposure. And if you step back over the last two years, since uh, January or February of 2020, the S&P is up 30 percent plus. And since March of 2020, we we're lucky to put money to work at that particular moment. You're up 100 percent. So that's a huge return already over the last couple of years. So it's right sizing, reducing the risk in that. And I think one way to do that there was a time and a place to be long equities and be long only and have this one directional exposure. But now we're talking about layering some hedges and maybe you sell away some of the upside by selling a call option and you buy and use that premium to buy a put option. So you do have some sort of protection on the downside. So I think that right there is one of the more <clears throat> important things right. that investors can do. And then it's about sectors, and then it's about where else can you get yield, Tom? What's the price to hedge right now? Is it outrageous? Is everybody on board, and have they knocked up the price to hedge? 
No, it's not outrageous. And that's exactly why I'm talking about it today versus, let's say, a month ago. When you had the VIX that spiked to 35, that was definitely not the time to be talking about putting on this downside protection. But now at VIX, you know, 20-ish or so, uh, now is the time to be looking at some of those put options. I mean, it gets very nuanced and very dynamic very quickly, but you want to find the points on the volatility curve where you can sell rich call premium and you can get a put option that's reasonably priced. Anastasia, but it's definitely not outrageous right now. We've called on you over the years for the perspective of your heritage and the travels you've made, particularly to the Black Sea. This is a weekend where Odessa is under unique threat. To you, what is the Odessa distinction now? What does it mean for Ukraine? For that matter, what does it mean for Russia? Well, uh, it is uh, it is a dire situation, needless to say, um, in Ukraine. And, you know, unfortunately, there's been almost an international concession right now that Russia is not likely to succeed broadly in Ukraine. But it seems like Russia has a pretty good chance of succeeding in the Donbass region, uh, in, the Black in, sea, the, yeah. in the Black Sea region and really connecting <clears throat> that. So. Perhaps Russia is not going to get Ukraine as the buffer zone that they were really hoping for. But it seems like it's pretty likely that they might succeed at reuniting the southeastern part of, of Ukraine and carving that out as the buffer zone they so desperately wanted. Anastasia, just awesome, as always, and fantastic yeah, to catch you, up with you. Thank you. Anastasia Amoroso there of iCapital on a situation in Ukraine and, of course, on the broader market as well. Let's kick things off with Ibrahim Rakbari, Global Head of FX Analysis at City. And Ibrahim, let's start right here. Are we pricing in a slowdown or something worse than that in this market? It's great to be joining you again. I think for now, we're only pricing in a slowdown. I don't think the market has quite made up its mind whether it's going to be a recession or just, quote unquote, a growth recession. But as we've heard from Bill Dudley, among others, we do need unemployment to go up, probably, to contain these extremely unusual levels of inflation. So for now, I would say a slowdown rather than a recession. But as you know, fine-tuning that uh, slowdown is going to be incredibly difficult. Ibram, I want to talk about the barbell that everyone in economics is talking about, which is the Hollenhorst Lagarde barbell. You've got Andrew Hollenhorst up, up, up on rates. You've got Lagarde trying to keep up with Powell. How do you balance the city call on rates with all of the challenges Lagarde has for euro stability? Well, I would say that uh, as, as clear as the direction of uh, the, the, the intention to tighten in the U.S. is now, and, 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 and Andrew has really been at the vanguard for anticipating it. Uh, I think the minutes, the ECB minutes yesterday were remarkable because uh, I think a little less noticed uh, has been the hawkish shift by the ECB. And I think the ECB has been looking at what has been happening in the U.S. And the minutes yesterday projected very clearly that uh, many people at the ECB think that it, the policy is very much in the wrong place and very much behind the curve, and that they frankly have a hard time understanding themselves why the ECB is still carrying out QE at a time when inflation in, in, in the Eurozone is also north of 7% and unemployment is below 7%, which by, by Eurozone standards is extremely low. So I could see Lagarde trying to catch up, not quite with Andrew's call for the Fed, but uh, by, by uh, a longer way than markets are currently 
uh, anticipating. You started out, Ibrahim, by saying it's not clear whether we're going to see a slowdown or a recession. When you take a look at where the euro and where the dollar are priced relative to each other, what are we pricing in versus what is going to be the slowdown and what is going to be the recession? So uh, Euro-dollar euro isn't, in fact, very directional in recessions, and whether that's global recessions uh, or U.S. recessions, it's really only to European recessions that it reacts very sharply. And, and that's what we saw in the Eurozone crisis in, uh, in, in 2010, 2012. And, and, and markets are pricing in a risk of that. And that's obviously linked to what's happening in energy prices and uh, with, with Ukraine-Russia. So global recession isn't really the main risk for Eurodollar. What we are looking at for, for Eurodollar specifically is, in fact, maybe more related to the French election or a Eurocentric shock. That's what could get Eurodollar down to the, the, the parity-type levels. If it is, quote-unquote, just a global recession or U.S. slowdown, there's a good chance Eurodollar actually will go up rather than down from the low levels that we are at present. Ibrahim, great to catch up, buddy. As always, Ibrahim Rakhmari there of City. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.